0: Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I am Harrison Cayley. Joining me today are Ilan Martin. Hi, everyone. And Adam Daniels. Hello. Today we are going to be discussing information. All the information. All of it. All the information because apparently I just found out that everything is information. Kind of blew my mind. Actually, that was a lie because I didn't just find out that I knew it for a while, but we're going to be discussing it today because it is actually quite cool and quite interesting. I never knew that information could be so interesting, um, that something with such a boring word to describe it could actually be so interesting because like information, it's like, what's that? Um, boring. But no, no information is actually quite cool, quite hip. The kids love the information these days. but they don't really realize what it is and how, uh, how wide-ranging and expansive the actual concept of information is. In the last uh, 100 years, probably less than 100 years, um, when was Cloud Shannon? In like the 50s or something? Mm-hmm. So for the past 60, 70 years, there's been this thing called information theory. And that too is kind of boring. Um, only kind of nerds and like information tech people really get into it. but. In recent years, more recent years, the ideas in information theory have been kind of expanded and applied to all kinds of different uh, areas of life and thought and science to the point where it's not just this um, kind of specialized field where, you know, dealing with encryption and, you know, the coding of information on like computer networks and in computer programs and things like that. But an actual, like, wide-range... to the, Well, it's gone to the extent of a, a wide-ranging, like, philosophy um, to the point where we are going to be discussing this book today by William Dembski called Being as Communion, a Metaphysics of Information, which kind of blew my mind when I read it. When did it come out? Let's see here. This book was published in 2014. That's probably around the year I read it. But uh, you guys have just... Read at least parts of it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what did you think, first of all? Then we can get into the details.
1: Um, I would agree with your initial uh, statement that it pretty much blew my mind. Um, it reminded me, uh, in a very similar way, of uh, Whitehead's process philosophy mm-hmm. and pan-experientialism. Um, there was a lot of connections there with uh if, inter- if rather than matter being the fundamental uh, thing, I guess you would say, of of nature, there is uh, information, mm-hmm. it it blended really well um, with uh, experience and processes being the fundamental nature of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the title of the
0: book is Being as Communion, because one of the main points that he makes, the kind of a uh, like the the main theme of the book that stretches through all the various sections on all these aspects of information is that the nature of reality is one of being in relation to other things and that's like fundamental to reality and that is actually what whitehead was on about with his process philosophy that everything is in process and in uh, like in communion in relation to other processes other experiences and that is actually a fundamental bit of a fundamental aspect of reality as a whole and um so whitehead i would say was like an information philosopher and didn't really know it um just cuz the terminology wasn't around at the time you know information theory hadn't been developed there were there weren't the words to describe it but when i read what people are writing about information these days Whitehead was saying very similar things without just u- without using the language of information. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe to start out with, we should talk a bit about what information actually is. Because, I mean, it's a word we all use every day. Like, you know, we get our information from the news. But it has a, um, on the one hand, a more specific definition. But also, um, like I was suggesting just a couple of minutes ago, a, a more all-encompassing definition. Um, Aspect to it as well, so that it it can account for much more um, much more phenomena than we would ordinarily think of as information, but it's also um, defined in a specific way that might come as a surprise to people who haven't um you know really delved into the subject mm-hmm. so i mean Information, when you first hear that, it's just like, you know, things that you learn about or get informed about. So like the news, we get information from the news, we get information from books and from other people. When we want a bit of information, we ask someone and they tell us, and then now we have that information, right? So it can be used in terms of like language and statements about the world and about people and about, you know, interior and external facts about the world. But what is it really? Um, when you look at information theory, the way it is applied to like um, coding, for instance, like in computer languages or in cryptography um, like I mentioned the guy cloud shannon he um, he 's the guy that originally developed some of these basic concepts he wasn 't the only one, but uh, he was kind of revolutionary in the in his discoveries and writings to the point where there's now something that they call cl- uh, shannon information it 's like a measure of the 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 potential information, like in any given stream of characters, I guess. It's like the the, the potential information storage in any, like, medium or, or, um, um, you know, information storage device or, um, like, even to something like language. Now, what I mean by that, so let's say that, uh, like, in a computer language, you have a certain number of, well, everything's in zeros and ones, right? So you've got a certain string of characters, and you can have a certain number of bits of information within... That string of characters. It's the same with language. So, if you have like a, you've got, let's say, 30 characters that you can type out on your computer. Now, there, are, if you take the total number of possible combinations of letters, and then like you've got your one specific sentence that you want to write out, like so, the all the different all the different possible strings of letters that you can write out is like the total like information carrying capacity of that, like that string of letters. But um, when we write, when we have actual information, like meaningful information, not just like a a, a probability or a, or a or a possibility space of all the possible strings of letters, we have one specific st- string of letters which is a a meaningful sentence in English or in whatever language you're dealing with. And so, the way in which people are now thinking in ter- uh, of information is that. In terms of these like possibility spaces, like we talked about in in previous weeks, where you've got a a range of possibilities, and then when you actually write a meaningful informational sentence, you are kind of collapsing that possibility space into one actual um, realized possibility. So, and in that way, what we what we are able able to do is to do things that on the surface of things are actually vastly improbable. This ties back to our discussion of like evolution and DNA and the genome, because the DNA, the uh, the genome is like an informational substrate, right? It, it it encodes information, and when when we look at that, like it's got so it's got like a total information like capacity that c- that it can hold, but it is a very specific string of of uh, a very specific sequence of like nucleotides that build up. That they can encode proteins and that build things, and it has to be specific, right? It can't just be any random sequence of DNA. It has to be a very specific sequence of DNA in order to get, um, you know, the 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 coding sequences for all of these proteins and things like that. So, when we think about that in terms of like probabilities, one of the things we discussed when discussing evolution was that the it it is vastly improbable to get any meaningful stretch of DNA randomly, right? So you, it would be like flipping, uh, well, it's kind of like, um, there's a couple analogies that people that talk about information like to use, like random flips of, uh, uh, like heads and tails, for instance. Like you're, it's, you're never going to get like a, a sequence of a million heads in a row. It's just going to be impossible. Like even it, it it goes so against the laws of probability that it's it's so improbable that we'd say it's like physically impossible for that to ha- actually happen. It's a similar thing in uh, when we're looking at the genome with DNA. It would be like having a monkey, you know, randomly typing out you know the, the complete works of Shakespeare or something. It's just never mm-hmm. going to happen. So it's vastly improbable. But then again we have someone, Shakespeare, who actually did write the complete works of Shakespeare like so a vastly improbable event when looked at you know in terms of randomness and seemingly like natural uh... natural processes humans can do that without even thinking very much about it mm-hmm. like i could easily type out the complete works of harrison kaylee and it might not be very good but it would be a vastly improbable event when looked at just from the just from the perspective of a meaningless um, like mindless universe, mm-hmm. that would be so improbable that it's an impossibility. But I could do it if I just sat down to you know to write out seven hundred pages of complete works of whatever I <laughs> would actually want to write about. So, there, when we're looking at information, there's we've got like there's some math involved. It's we we have a bunch of things that like. I'm just gonna like list some some features of information that all come into play. Like there's meaning, so it has to actually mean something. It has to be a specific something that is being like a, that is the information. There's probabilities involved, so there's math. It's like so we're gonna look at we're gonna be looking at um, how probable something is, what the different possibilities are, um, and the, the the information is actually gonna be very um, for the most part it's gonna be very improbable. So the more in the the more improbable something is the m- the more information it can carry or the more information capacity that it has to to carry information and not only that that's not the only thing that is um, information it's not just like language or you know the 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 bits that you can have in a string of like uh, you know alpha alpha numeric characters or whatever the most general thing that information is it's the, the the like uh the collapse of a a possibility space into one actuality um, we'll get into I, I might read some quotes as we go on um, from the book because Dembski, um puts things in really clear terms and actually makes all these concepts kind of clear it's hard to know where, when to where to start when talking about mm-hmm. uh, information theory, but um maybe that's. We can just use that as a kind of basic intro. Or, what do, you, do you guys have anything to like add on that or clarify?
2: Yeah. So, um, well, I'll just say that uh, this has been my first foray into information theory um, since about a few years ago. Uh, so it was it was nice to revisit it and to think about these ideas, especially as they relate to uh, material uh, materialists and the idea that um, everything is this kind of arbitrary, accidental um, combination and recombination of uh, material particles acting together uh, on accident to produce some kind of result. So what Dembski and um, other proponents of uh, information theory and intelligent design are proposing is that there has to be in the vast scheme of things, um, another explanation, another uh, another something that informs the nature of reality, that um, that accounts for these highly improbable uh, results that you were referring to, Harrison, that that seem to that can't be explained away as a as this arbitrary. Um, kind of spontaneously uh, created um, thing that, that that happens to exist, mm-hmm. so he is he is at least putting his for, his foot in the in the door of uh, questions he 's saying that materialists uh, seek to uh, eliminate the possibilities of a um, of an outside uh, source of 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 intelligence of something that uh, helps to create or inform those things that exist in the world and uh, he's a a Christian theist as he calls himself, so he does ascribe to um, the notion that that there is a god um, but he doesn't it's not that simple for him either uh, and he he won't he doesn't completely um, fall into this kind of category of saying that, um, that because there is a God, it, it's only God that is uh, informing reality with its thoughts of reality. Um, but he doesn't rule that out either, it, it seems to me. So um, this is a, a really kind of eye-opening look at uh, why materialists uh, can't have the whole enchilada? How things as they exist, especially DNA, uh, being as complicated and uh, and sort of um, designed as it is, can't simply be explained away by the, the an accidental universe where everything is a kind of a biological coincidence.
0: Well, I think there are two aspects of reality that we have to take into account. So one is the, like the one that you're, or the ones that you're alluding to, which are kind of like the the things that kind of look miraculous, like, uh, you know, like the origin of the cell or the genome. But there's also just on a more mundane level, if you're just looking at the world in terms of, um, you know, matter, energy, you can't describe reality completely. Um, you need information to be able to describe reality, um, because you have to be able to account for not only like the information that humans create and and pass between each other every single day or every moment of every you know of their existence. You have to be able to account for um, like the specificity of things, like uh, and th- this is one of the 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 directions that. Um, several scientists have been going over you know over the past like 60 years or so is looking at reality itself in terms of information that you can't even describe matter and the the material world without looking at it in terms of information without adding that into the equation because well uh, a simple way of getting that to that first idea is if you look at like a book you can describe a book completely in terms of its material makeup but that won't account for The information in the book, like the the, that's and and that's the kind of the primary purpose of the book. The primary like uh, essence of the book is the information in it. If you just describe it in terms of the the atoms and the molecules making up the pages,
1: or it's three inches thick and six inches long and whatever.
0: Yeah, then then you're missing the point, right? Mm -hmm. You need you need information as a category to be able to account for um, you know that aspect of reality. And I think it was. John Archibald Wheeler, who had the the idea of like, um, was it it from bit? Yeah, that uh, that information. The, what he was implying by that statement, it from bit, is that like it, like an existence, is actually predicated on an underlying bit or information. So that the the world is actually an expression of information, as opposed to information being like a you know an epiphenomenon of, mm-hmm. of the material world so when you this is one of the aspects that demsky gets into that's why he's called a, a metaphysics of information he's basically saying that information is a fundamental aspect of reality so when you look at something like the material world like uh like particles and uh, the interactions of different particles to make atoms and molecules and all this every time every scientific um, observation or discovery is information on both ends. So like there's an informative process that's going on through the observation because when you're observing something you're seeing one pattern to the exclusion of all other patterns. Mm -hmm. That's information because um, um, the way that uh, Dembski defines information, I kind of like paraphrased it to start out with, but the way he actually puts it is that information is the ruling out of possibilities. Mm -hmm. So the greater number of possibilities that are ruled out the greater information is in mm. that, uh, that thing. So every scientific observation is actually informational because when you're seeing a pattern, a pattern is itself information because when you see one pattern, you're excluding, you're not seeing all mm-hmm. other patterns. So when you're looking at a book, you're looking at that book and you're not looking at all other books.
1: And you're not looking at everything else that's not a book.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, well, we'll get into that too, because that that gets into like the classes of of uh, things that, that are inherent in, in. Uh, well, there's a comparison, uh, there's an implicit comparison in every like informative process. And you just like uh, got to the heart of that with that comment, because you can look at, yeah, so not only am I looking at this book to the exclusion of all other books in existence, I'm looking at that book to the exclusion of all possible books in existence, and to everything uh, to, to to all books and everything that 's not a book so it 's this one specific thing and there are, you can you can create many different like classes you know you can bracket off all these different categories and classes within classes to to get to this one specific thing this one specific book that you know that i 'm holding right now and um, so to get back to just my original point there information we need information not only to describe um, like the 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 vastly improbable events that kind of defy explanation in terms of um, the, the the categories and the processes readily available to to like the modern scientific mindset, but we also need it to account for well science itself and like every kind of mundane thing that we just take for granted, like everything is informational. Like like in in my situation, like right now in my experience, right now i am perceiving just a vast amount of information so i'm seeing adam you know not seeing everything that isn't adam there's things in my you know peripheral vision of course but but there's a very specific informational process going on just by the act of me observing you know the person sitting across from me and um... so again to the exclusion of everything that's not adam and everything like every possibility not only, um, not only every actuality that's around me in my physical environment, and extending past you know my perceptive capabilities, you know behind the walls, you know a mile away, ten thousand miles away at the, mm-hmm. other, at the other side of the universe, but also every possibility because Adam could theoretically be wearing a different T-shirt, right? I'm not seeing the T-shirt he's not wearing. Every act of observation is actually an informational um, exchange. Again that coming back to the title of the book being as communion there is an there is information coming from Adam to me from Elan to me from this entire room into like all my sensory um, receptors mm-hmm. and then at the same time it's an exchange because I'm sending information back and a lot of that is just I, I mean, like I said it's stuff we take for granted that we don't really pay attention to and there are probably like different types and levels of information like um, like um, Either of these guys saying something to me is going to be like a different phenomenon than me just looking at the at you know what they're wearing, but they all come together, and um, that just goes to show like how much how much information everything actually is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor way of putting it, but uh,
1: there's one uh, part in the book where he was talking about um, why it is that uh, more information is um, given in the uh, and the li- i guess the the less likely something is the more information that it carries mm-hmm. and i think if i remember correctly it was uh, a particular exchange between two hypothetical people you know just say mm-hmm. you know you and i harrison um you know you ask me how's the weather and i can tell you you know it's raining well that doesn't tell you a whole lot mm-hmm. i mean it tells you that you know it it's raining, but it doesn't tell you what kind of rain or how heav- or how hard it's raining.
0: Or where it's raining. <laughs> or where
1: it's raining. Yeah, that that's a good point. Like, it could be raining somewhere in South America, and, you know, that wasn't mm-hmm. your specific question, maybe. Mm-hmm. So the more possibilities that you rule out by being more specific and intentional in your language, uh, the more information that you can then pass on. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it's it's kind of like a, a game of twenty questions, but it, it kind of never ends, right? So mm-hmm. with the question about the weather, it's like, well, how's the weather? Oh, it's raining. Oh, well, how much is it raining? It's raining this much. Well, what kind of rain is it? You know, and and the more specific you get, you get a much clearer picture of the actual weather. So you're getting more and more specific as you go, and the like the less specific you are, the more general thing, the more general a picture you have, and there are so you don't actually know exactly the, how the weather is. You've got a general picture. Which includes like um, a bunch of possi- a bunch of possible weather situations, but mm-hmm. you're but you're not yet at the like you can't really say what the very specific weather situation is that you're inquiring about. So, and each um, with each clarification, that's a more um, more in depth, more improbable, you know, more um, more specific. Statement about the world, and therefore, you know, it has more information because Mm -hmm. more possibilities are ruled out. I've I've ruled out that it's you know not just raining in South America. I've ruled out that it's not just like a light rain. I've ruled out that it that it um you know hasn't been raining for the last 24 hours. Right. Mm -hmm. The more possibilities you rule out, the more information you have, and that's actually it's it's an interesting way of putting uh, of defining information because it is because of its generality. Mm-hmm. Because um, if you think about information in those terms, then, then you look at all the things you can apply it to. And of course, we've done you know, several already so far in this show, but really you can apply it to like, pretty much anything. And one of the ways that he does it is right at the beginning of the book when he's talking about free will. Because um, he basically, is, he, he's of the, 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 the view that free will is really the power of No. What he means by that is that every action you take is yes to one possibility and no to all those other possibilities. Jordan Peterson made this point you know I think a couple of months ago in one of his talks i can't remember which one it was where he was basically describing consciousness and he was describing how when you take one of the features of consciousness seems to be it's like a channeling of of possibilities into into one thing, like you can only ever do one thing. I think this was in the context if if it wasn't in the debates with Sam Harris, it was in a talk or like a discussion he was having about the, the debates with Sam Harris. <clears throat> because one of the issues they were talking about was the you know the whole thing about there being like a, a multitude, like an infinitude of facts, and you need some kind of process, some kind of scheme in order to. Um, to identify which facts you're actually going to look at, well, that itself is an infor- an information process because mm-hmm. you're, you're excluding possibilities, right? So when you when you have a, a, a like a thousand facts in front of you, and you only see like one fact in combination with maybe four other facts, and you have this little fact like bubble that you're you're ruling out all the other facts that you could possibly perceive at that moment. That's information, and um, two other things about. Peterson's perspective that shows that I think you know Peterson too is an information philosopher and and doesn't know it or he hasn't at least he hasn't used those words, one in his description of the nature of consciousness as um, encountering possibility and you know bringing one into actuality, and uh, another in his um, the way in which he talks about well like I think it was the one I mentioned where he he talks about consciousness channeling um, all possible you know actions into one action so it's like there's something about the the mind and the brain and the way all those processes actually work that it it uh it all reduces down to one action in the present so um with free will it's the same thing it's like the uh, like the way in which we experience the world and the way that we think about the world um it's inescapable that we think in terms of um that aren't deterministic actually so we always think as if all the choices that we make there have been a, a, a set of possible a set of possible actions and that we've taken one so we could have chosen otherwise and that's the way in which we always behave all the time and there's no escaping it you know when you write something you could have chosen a different word there you could have phrased this differently you know when you cook cook a dinner a meal you could have let this like cook a little bit longer. You could have added this ingredient. Like the, that's we can't help but think that way. So like Whitehead would say, if we can't help but think it, we have to account for it. And um, so when we make choices, that's actually, again, it's an, we're, we're kind of bringing information into the world. We're, we're manifesting some kind of information in the very actions that we choose at every moment of our lives. Because at any moment when we're doing something, we're not doing all the other things.
1: And that can, I think, tie into the um, the failure of the materialist uh, mindset or perspective to account for um, free will and consciousness. Mm-hmm. Because in a purely materialist universe, these things are just accidental, um, and they are epiphenomenon, something that comes out of matter. And there's no way to really um, account for it other than to say that if this is a materialist universe and everything is determined or deterministic, um, then potentially I should be able to uh, look at the uh, history of an individual, let's say. Mm -hmm. And if I get uh, enough information about this individual, I can then uh, be able to determine what this person's going to do Mm -hmm. because he cannot have acted in in any other way. Mm
0: Yeah, and that would be like, <clears throat> excuse me, the complete deterministic um, like way of looking at the world. Where um, well, the way he phrases it at one point of the book is that in, in a deterministic universe, every possibility is realized because because nothing can ever go any way differently than it actually went. So every possibility is realized. Everything that happened was the only thing that could have happened, which is of course nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't even think there are many people that are actually that deterministic. I, I think that the people who, who think that they're determinists or who say that they're determinists just actually haven't thought through that far because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure they'd, they'd be able to find areas in their, their knowledge either of the physical world or of themselves where they, you know, they contradict their own views. Um, but the question is, what's the nature of the, like the indeterminism because that's a, a valid question too. Like, is it is everything chance, and or is there room for like the a, a free agent? Because a, um, you can have an indeterminate world that doesn't have free agents in it. Well, at least you can conceive of such a world. Mm-hmm. Whether it actually accurately describes our reality is another question. But like, so if we look at um, you know like quantum phenomena, or you know when we get down to that level of reality where there seems to be indeterminacy. Um, you know, things can go one way or the other, and then they happen to go one way. At least that's the way that we we think it happens. Um, it, does something similar happen, you know, at other levels of of the material world, where, you know, things just happen, but we don't actually have control over them? That's a, a question. Of course, Dembski doesn't think that's the, the, the proper way of looking at things. In fact, he actually, you know, questions what chance actually is. Like, what is the nature of chance? What is the, the nature of randomness? Mm-hmm. um because one of the things he points out when thinking about information in in terms of these probability sets you know every every process seems to kind of occupy this this probability distribution right where some things are more probable than others some things are vastly improbable um and those those curves may vary just like um like the the positions of electrons you know uh, buzzing around um, mm-hmm. you know, the nucleus of an atom, um, there are different probabilities at, at different areas. But um, but when you look at the, the actions that people take, for instance, like the way people write, there are probabilities that become apparent in even acts that are intelligent in nature. So, for example, when we use language, um, when we write books, when we then analyze, like, the, the words and the letters in those books, we find that, um, you know, the letter E might occur a certain percentage of times, and that's actually pretty pretty representative of, you know, all written English. Like any English book that you examine, you're going to find the letter E used, as, like, within a range of, a, 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 you know, certain percentage points, um, a certain number of percentage points. So you can find these probability distributions even in intelligence, act, intelligent actions. You can also, um, you know, find them in just the the statistics of certain behaviors you know you give people certain choices between options and then you do a study and you'll find oh well, this percentage of people tends to go in this direction and this percentage tends to go in that direction you can find these probabilities that are that are seemingly um, well from one perspective it looks like they're determined deterministic in a sense like okay this percentage of people is always gonna do this and it seems like set in stone it's almost like you know astrology it's like this is your fate mm-hmm. to, to go this direction as opposed to this direction but on the other hand um you can look at it as well this is just like it's just the way of measuring the what people actually choose and for some reason people choose in you know in these proportions you know um, and according to this probability distribution and with things like that in mind, he questions, "Well, what is the nature of chance in the like the natural world? Like even when you when you go back when you go down to the quantum level, or um, just you, you're looking at um, just anything that you can measure in that way in the universe, where where does that chance come from? Well, he argues that it's at least possible that even that level of randomness and chance is a result of the intelligence of he would argue like God, um, you know Whitehead might say a similar thing um, mm-hmm. God or, the, or creativity or you know the cosmic mind that, that, that there's actually, that is a a byproduct of intelligence at, the, at that level of the, of the cosmos mm-hmm. so that kind of throws up <clears throat> in the air you know our even our notions of what it means to be um, you know random or you know a chance event and, and even that opens up the the possibility for something else because he's got a chapter in there on causality and what what it means to you know for, for something to cause something else and he says that even in like a, a causally closed universe where um you know the only real causation would be like one bit of matter on another bit of matter even in a universe like that as long as, as there are indeterminate processes as long as there are, are processes that are like probabilistic in any in any um, like given way of measuring that is the kind of like the window for a possible divine influence because an intelligence can like, even if it's, even if the world is, is constrained by like physical limitations, if there's anything that, that, um, that operates on like a a probability distribution, that means that improbable events can happen. And if improbable events can happen, then those, you know through his argumentation can be the result of like a a divine influence um or like and all all that he means by a divine influence is an information transfer so you can transfer information into a system just through the the playing of probabilities and that too gets is kind of like a a more, uh, a more modern way of describing what we were talking about in terms of Whitehead's philosophy where um he because Whitehead said something similar about divine influence, is that the divine influence is through that um, it, it's it's through the like the the possibilities that you know present to your to your mind essentially mm-hmm. so you are still bound by the the physical laws you know or just you know the habits of nature that mm-hmm. uh, that surround you but when you do but you can do something improbable and the source of that improbability, the source of that possibility that you then actualize, well, where did that come from? How did you get access to that possibility? How did you even, how did whatever part of you that chooses know that it was a possibility in order to actually do it? Yeah. Um, because you have to conceive of something before you actually do it, even if it's a, in a very like unconscious way. Um, that's another thing that Dembski argues is that in information, um, like in the information channel, that he kind of describes in the book, and this is basic information theory, you know, just in in terms of like, you know, computer uh, programming and things like that. When information gets coded, that information first needs to be conceived, like you need to think it, and then it gets encoded, and then it gets transferred through, you know, a a medium to the receiver. The receiver has to decode it, and then the receiver has that information. Um, Something similar seems to go on 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 a whole other level, um, and that's what Whitehead said, too. It's like that's a foundational aspect of reality. That's how things get done. That's how everything gets done. And this is kind of just coming back to why I think Jordan Peterson, too, is like an information philosopher, because when he describes the nature of consciousness being that, you know, that confrontation with possibilities, and then, you know, so we're dealing with potential futures. That's the nature of consciousness is that we see a vast array of possibilities in any given moment, and then we actualize one of those possibilities. Well, that means that we have to have some, it means a couple things. We need to have some way of perceiving those possibilities, because possibilities aren't matter, right? We can't mm-hmm. can't see them and touch them, but no, we need some other kind of sight where we can uh, see and conceive of these possibilities, and then we have to have some way of... Uh, you know bringing them into into being
2: well as you were describing all of that i was thinking about the subject of our last show uh npcs um and npc npcs thank you <laughs> <laughs> and those you know individuals who run on on very um kind of automatic programmed um beliefs and thoughts and and limited information um and so Something that, uh, that seems pretty clear is that they're, that they're not informed by many ideas. They're not informed by many possibilities that would govern their actions that would lead to, say, you know, the, the individuals who have walked away or who are part of this walk-away movement who have uh, allowed a certain amount of information and perspective to govern their free will and make different choices for themselves. So and it it seems to me that there's it's no accident that uh that many of these um individuals uh are holding fast to conventional science uh, are demonizing uh, others who aren't sub, uh subscribing to or ascribing to the um kind of conventional uh man- made global warming and have kind of limited themselves to a materialist uh, worldview. Um, You know, cultural Marxism. Uh, It kind of precludes a lot of religious uh, thought and and openness to any uh, higher level of reality where information might come from. So uh, I was thinking of that as you were describing, just to put that on a kind of, um, base level of of how of how this can affect an individual of how closing off the possibilities mm-hmm. of of holding fast to a very kind of deterministic um, mindset uh, limits one's ability to act as a um, with as much free will as as they're capable of constitutionally.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's at least theoretically possible, and it seems to be um, like self evidently the case that some people, for whatever reasons, have a, a narrower range of possibilities that they seem to perceive and then bring into the into being, right, to, to manifest. So you'll see, like, one, one person that you might know that just seems to do the same thing over and over, right, doesn't seem to have very much a variety in his or her choices and, like, you know, even just in their daily activities and routines and in the, in the thoughts they think, very like, a con- maybe a very conventional thinker, or even not necessarily conventional, but just, you know, doesn't stray too far from the, the, s- the small number of, um, you know, thoughts and feelings and uh, opinions that they have, doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't reach too far out to, uh, to open themselves to new ideas or new possibilities, and just seems to, you know, be on that, that steady, narrow track like through, throughout, you know, potentially their whole lives. we all know people who you know we've all encountered people like that at least and um yeah so that's kind of how it plays how it seems to play out um in the in the actual like you know the actual world that we live in it's not like um it's not like everyone's the same and it's not like all possibilities are the same for well it may be that it may be that all possibilities are the same for 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 everyone but for each individual it's like there are just like the the electrons you know, in their orbits, um, they all have different, par- different probability distributions, different curves, right? So one person might have certain actions and certain possibilities that are way more probable than others, and some might, they just might be almost impossible, like vastly improbable. Um, but the possibilities might still be there. It's just you know, where they lie in the, in the, in the probability distribution. So one way of looking at things, but uh, unless you did, you have anything to say on that? Nope. Well, I want to read uh, a couple things from the from near the end of the book, because first one of them comes back to the you know that idea of free will being the power of no. Um, Dempsey has a couple quotes from uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was, as far as I know, I haven't read any Chesterton, but as as far as I know, he he wrote both like philosophy and theology, as well as kind of like uh, almost murder mysteries, which is kind of interesting combination. Um, I think, you know, not having read him, I may, that may be fake news. But he quotes a couple things from, uh, from Chesterton, a couple paragraphs. So um, this one's about free will, or about will. Chesterton writes, Every act of will is an act of self-limitation. To, to desire action is to desire limitation. In that sense, every act is an act of self-sacrifice. When you choose anything, you reject everything else. Every act is an irre- irrevocable selection and exclusion. Just as when you marry one woman, you give up all the others, so when you take one course of action, you give up all the other courses. Mm-hmm. Again, just coming back to you know, what I was talking about in, um, with reference to Jordan Peterson and some of the things he's said. And then another quote from Chesterton. It was the prime philosophic principle of Christianity that this divorce in the divine act of making, such as severs the poet from the poem or the mother from the newborn child, was the true description of the act whereby the absolute energy made the world. According to most philosophers, God in making the world enslaved it, According to Christianity, in making it, he set it free. God had written not so much a poem, but rather a play, a play he had planned as perfect, but which had necessarily been left to human actors and stage managers, who had since made a great mess of it. So that in itself, I thought, was like a poetic way of putting what we were what it, trying to describe when we were describing like Whitehead's philosophy and his mm-hmm. theology because basically according to whitehead's philosophy what the like the prime um, the prime act of god of like the, the intelligence the the, the unified cre- the unified intelligence behind the cosmos and you know everything in, in it was to to give order to all of the eternal objects basically all the possibilities and what that means was is basically writing a play writing like a a general sequence of events with with various um, like ends in mind so it's like uh, it would be like when you have a plan for any, for anything. I want this to happen. This is the best possible outcome given these starting conditions. That was the prime act of God to create that template, basically that that pathway, that um, that uh, like uh, that immense and like um, long and adventure-filled story that gets to like the the, the grand conclusion. But the being the taking into account the nature of reality and the nature of the, the beings that, that play those parts, it's, it's never going to match up to that ideal vision. <laughs> the ideal vision will al- always be there, and things will match up to it to a greater or lesser degree, but it will never be a perfect copy. And that's what um, that's what Dembski basically writes. Uh, Chesterton here treats creation as a play whose production fails to match the quality of the script. God has written the perfect script, but the actors can't pull it off. In the idiom of double creation, God as creator exercises perfect control at the first creation, that is the conception of the, the thing that you're going to make, mm-hmm. but then cedes control at the second creation, permitting it to go haywire. The second creation is when you actually make something. Um, because he quotes, um, he says, I'll just go backwards a page first, he says, one of the best expressions of this principle um, of double creation that I've found, however, occurs not in the writings of theologians or philosophers. Rather, it appears in the work of businessman and leadership expert Stephen Covey. Quote, all things are created twice. There's a mental or first creation and a physical or second creation to all things. So he's applying this um, via the Chesterton quote to the creation of, like, the universe. And creation basically means, the like, the ordering of... Because when you create something, you're actually giving order to some like uninformed, uh, uninformed mass of something. Like when you make a uh, like a, a clay sculpture, it's unformed to begin with, and you when you bring form to it, you create the sculpture. Um, it's not that you create it out of nothing, but rather that you give form to um, to something to to then create whatever you want to create. So he says that this just. Dist- This disjunction between first and second creation has, of course, profound implications for the problem of evil. God's will is done in heaven, but less so on earth. God in creating the world has set it free, that freedom presumably entailing benefits that exceed its costs. In its freedom, the world has become prodigal, abandoning its divine moorings, and now needs to find its way back to God. According to the Christian teaching, the incarnation of Christ is God's means for winning the world back to itself, consistent with the world's freedom without coercion. And we can think of that, you know, if you're not a if you're not a Christian, if you don't think in those terms, like that's kind of one of the great things about Jordan Peterson or, um, you know, plenty of other people that look at these kind of things. It's what, uh, you know, probably what Paul himself at the origins of Christianity was was doing by introducing new terminology by introducing this new Christian language is that what is you know what was the Christ for Paul Well, that the Christ was the the mindset necessary in order to 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 see your part in that play and better better play your part basically how to be the best it's cheesy but how to be the best you you can be right where where you act correctly you know according to your your own actual like essential convictions like at the heart of who you are to 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 be able to actually put um t- to live up to your potential essentially mm-hmm. to actually be able to be um like the a good person and like that is what living in Christ means is to be lit to to be living in the mindset of um, of the Christ and, and the, what Paul meant by the Christ. Well, he had specific characteristics that, uh, that were you know, associated with the, the Christ mentality, the Christ mindset. And basically to take that out of the, like the, the religious terminology, it's basically like the, to conform your mind to the ideal template for living the best life possible in, in all possible ways according to a set of like objective values. So there's not really much room for relativity in in that view, but um, um, that's because you know relativity is nonsense in in at, le- at least in the terms of like moral relativity or um, you know there's going to be different different people in different situations are going to have like the, the best option of it, the, the best options available to those people in different situations are going to be different options naturally so there's going to be differences between individuals but they all align with A common set of values and a common set of like end goals like so um, there is a common set of end goals in the universe there is a common set of of like kind of um, cosmic values that were that humanity is striving towards Um, but they depending on the conditions in which an individual lives or a group lives or an entire like um, epoch of humans lives there are going to be different options open and uh, you know the, the best options might be different at, at different places in time and in different places and according to you know and and for different individuals. So um, those were the two Chesterton, Chesterton quotes, but uh, there was one other thing because he, he mentioned the the possibilities for or the implications it had for the problem of evil. Well, a couple of pages ago he before that he had just one paragraph on evil. He says that Shannon's communication diagram, this is the diagram that shows um, like the information source, the message, the transmitter, and then the signal, which is then received by the receiver and then, you know, uh,
2: decoded to the destination. There's also the influence of noise.
0: Yeah, and I I missed that and I was going to say it. So (laughs) while the signal is being sent, that's where the noise is. That's the noise source. Mm. Thanks for pointing that out. So what he writes is that Shannon's communication diagram is easily mined for theological resonances. Noise, along the communication channel for instance, can can readily be identified with the distorting effects of evil on intentions that started out good at the information source. It then becomes an open question to what degree the noise source is autonomous, acts by its own warped intention, is perhaps sovereignly instituted by God, or has access to randomness that's beyond divine control. He comments that uh, my own theology causes me to reject the latter option, though process and open theism would be receptive to it. So there he's got a reference to process theism, you know, which uh, was uh, developed by Charles Hartshorn based on, on Whitehead's ideas. So that, there, the access to randomness that's beyond divine control. So maybe some degree of evil is due to um, you know the the things that are out of god's control and uh I know that uh david ray griffin and and uh and hartshorn would basically agree that there are some things that are just random that just happen just due to the way that the physical world is constructed It's like we live on a planet that because of all of the various characteristics of that planet um f- result in things like weather and with things like weather things. Certain things can't be controlled, like where a hurricane is going to land and how many people are going to be killed in a hurricane, for instance. And that is like a type of evil. That type, you know, that kind of suffering from natural evil is, a, or from natural disasters, is a type of evil. Um, and just like Peterson distinguishes between um, various types of suffering, like like the suffering from a natural disaster, from an accident, and then the suffering caused by malevolence. So there are different types. So with when we think about that in terms of information. Um, again, this goes back to Whitehead as well, you can have, like, every every being presumably has access to, like, the, the best eternal object, the best possibility in any given moment. Mm-hmm. That's what gives it its force. That's what allows the universe to progress into novelty, into something that, you know, hasn't happened before. That's why the universe is always different at any given moment, and how new things come into being. Well, if that's the case then how does evil come into being how does malevolence come into being if presumably we all have access to the best possible course of action well it's the fact that we don't um well the pos- the best possible course of action is always there like if the signal is always being sent we don't always have access to it um to a you know to a, to the best degree possible the the signal might be noisy and why is it noisy well it might be from our past actions that have like that have diluted our, our capacity to receive that signal. It might be just from, due to randomness. Um, and um, well, that's just one way of looking at it. Basically, the signal is noisy.
2: Well, another way of looking at it is that part of the challenge of being a, a, a consciousness unit uh, existing in the world, maybe it was God's plan to uh, incorporate uh, the noise as a challenge, as a, as a part of the... Uh, the way th- that things are set up, in order to appreciate those things that uh, that do emit a stronger or more um, beneficial signal, um, so so that in in learning about what is, we have to we have to make distinctions uh, between what is and what isn't, um, and so that seems to be part of the uh, or could be part of the plan. I would say. Um, and, and part of the challenge, and part of the, the, the kind of uh, sacrifice that, uh, that you quoted from in that passage before. So we're, we're attempting, I think, as individuals, some of us anyway, uh, to weed out those ideas that, um, that perhaps don't uh, provide for the best of all possible worlds uh, and, and do... Um, bring us closer in communion with ideas that are uh, closer to uh, a Christ consciousness or a, or a level of being that is um, acknowledging the signal for for its truth and or at least making an attempt to see where truth exists in the midst of the noise well
0: Adam yes. what, do, what do you think? <laughs> About G- give us a just give us a deep thought right now just <laughs> off the top of your head deep thought time. <laughs> um, Was there were there any, were there any other parts of the book that kind of like jumped out at you that uh, struck you as interesting?
1: Um, the portion um, spe- talking specifically about um, teleology mm-hmm. uh, and then the purpose and. Meaning that we must, in our interactions uh, with the world and with each other, uh, ascribe to things, um, objects, people, um, and in a materialist universe where all is random and uh, there's, it's all just you know randomness and natural selection, uh, and yet you have a mind that strives uh you have hands that grasp mm-hmm. and it, so it just you know again it, coming back to just kind of like a an overall thing it it seems to me as a um an essence of nature uh to have or to yeah, yeah to have purpose and to work towards um something better mm-hmm.
0: um yeah and that's uh Yeah, that's one of the kind of the big implications of of looking at the world in this way is that they're you know just like information is fundamental to reality, that purpose is fundamental to reality. That means meaning is fundamental to reality. Mm -hmm. Again, these are things that like Jordan Peterson has been saying, and that uh, that have always been true, but no one's been really saying them in a public way for Mm -hmm. for a long time. And that's just to repeat ourselves for you know for from numerous other shows that's yep. really what the world needs right now mm-hmm. because if you if you don't see a world in which meaning is possible and actually real then what's the point right mm-hmm. that's why so I think that's why so many people you know commit suicide and just go down really like bad paths in their lives is that they don't see that they that they do have a purpose, mm-hmm. you know that there is some that they could find some meaning in the world because it's a real meaning, and that they've got to, like a, a very important job to do mm-hmm. that yeah. is that is relevant not only just in their own personal life but in like relevant to the entire universe, and it may be a small part, but every small part is a big part essentially mm-hmm. because, I mean, look around the world and uh, like how many people do you see who are seemingly like embodying their purpose like 100%, right? Um not very many. So that should be even more of an impetus to take up the challenge mm-hmm. because who else is going to do it, right? There's a job that needs to be done and no one's stepping up to the plate. It's like, well, it might be it might be scary and it might be um um, you know you can, you can feel resentful about it but that's kind of like missing the point is that no actually it's like that's where you find meaning and that's where you that's where you feel the best that's where you feel that everything's right in the world is when you're doing what you're supposed to do mm-hmm. and when you have that kind of guiding purpose in your life that's what actually gives meaning that's what actually gives um, you know not happiness but, uh, but being in the right place at the right time feeling like you know at one with yourself in the universe like you're doing what is right it's not going to be easy but at least it gives you that kind of like a, um, satisfaction that you're actually doing something useful.
1: At the same time, too, there was, um, I don't know if it's something that uh, Jordan Peterson has said specifically, but it, it, he's the one that comes to mind when I think about this, was um, with a, a divine reality where uh, there's creative inspiration, a, a divine impulse, you could say, um, to reach ever higher moral ideals. Um it kind of stands in the face of of what you see with um, the sjws and the NPC liberals uh, who you know stand at the doors of the Supreme Court banging like nut jobs uh, because they have a very a very confined view as to what is and isn't good, and so when you have these ideas of a uh, divine reality and a divine purpose that is far more inclusive um, of of things other than just you know happiness or well beings for minorities. When you when you encompass the world um, in a in a more broad sense, mm-hmm. uh, it gives you a more informed way to be or to act and to actually bring about that which you think is good.
0: Mm-hmm. And it brings it brings your your own personal possibilities into focus. Mm-hmm. Because when you're acting as part of a mob, as part as a part of a like a a group, like the the goals of the group um like if you look at like a, a protest movement are very broadly defined. Mm-hmm. And when you have a broadly defined aim like that, also the actions that you take are broadly, you know, varied. So, when you, if your only purpose is to end racism, for instance, yeah. then, well, if that's your purpose, then it gets to the point of, like, the end justifies the means, in a sense. Like, the most important thing is ending racism, therefore we will, you know, we will kill as many people as we need to in order to end racism. Like, that's the kind of, like, the 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 worst case scenario that something like that can go to again. And it comes back to that quote that I read about evil, about the, like the noise entering the signal to the point where, um, it distorts, mm-hmm. um, it distorts the original good intention. But when you, when you expand your horizons and get more information about the world and in all its complexity, mm-hmm. that, that like telescopes down your possibilities um, like to a to a remarkable degree where you now have a very limited set of of um, sp- very specific actions to take in the world it's not this general amorphous thing like um, like fighting the 1% or ending racism it's like no here are the actual actions that you can take in your everyday life first of first of all um, that you personally can take for your own development and then the, the influence that you can have on, the, on the, the people around you in various you know spheres of, of separation degrees of separation, like it becomes a very specific thing where you have like your purpose and your actions mm-hmm. that you can take. And it's a very, it's a very personalized, s- specific course of action as opposed to just joining a mob and, you know, going to these protests and acting like complete idiots. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, so there's something there about like, like the level of resolution. It's like the, the level of, revo- of resolution for a, um, like a group mentality is is very low resolution it 's like they 've got <clears throat> it's it's vague it 's broadly defined it 's not specific it's uh you know it 's got these broad goals in mind but no actual like plan it's kind of like um the what a lot of critics of u s foreign policy have said about um you know like obama 's approach to to syria like assad well what do you okay let's say that Assad must go let 's say he goes what What's the result? Like, who do you put in his place? Mm-hmm. It's like, when you don't have a, an actual, specific, course of action, when you've just got when you've just got this ideological, mm-hmm. like, goal in mind, mm-hmm. it, it, which isn't broad, which which isn't very well defined, which isn't very specific, then that's what op- opens the course for evil, um, actually. But when you actually look at the complexity of the of the situation, like, if all the foreign policy. Um, you know, strategists in the in the West that came up with this great idea of Assad must go. If they'd actually looked at the complexity of the situation, they would have seen well. Well, this is assuming good intentions and that they actually had uh, like truth in mind and and the the search for for actual truth. They would have seen they wouldn't have done it in the first place. They wouldn't mm-hmm. have had this policy because like uh, well, first of all, you know, given conditions and given the nature of the you know the the. Um, the ideological revolutionary forces in Syria and that that were imported from all around the world, given that nature, Assad is and has been like the best option for Syria, like objectively. Mm -hmm. And and when you're thinking in terms of like a specific country and the fact that any specific country can be better, well, yeah, of course, every specific country can be better in certain ways. That doesn't mean the best option is regime change. Um, And there are different... Different types and different levels of regime of regime change. That's um, um, well, a whole other subject. But what, my main point is that, like, if we're using this as an, as an example, like, uh, like, um, like geopolitics, and just like the conditions in any given country. Take any given country, and the situation can be better. Naturally, so then applying this same kind of principle. You get as much information as possible. You learn about the, the all the complexities involved, and you see that there's a very like there's a very like there's a tightrope that you can walk in order to make things better, because chances are any intervention you make, any any like prescription, any medication you give to the to any country involved will only make things worse. Mm-hmm. This is another point that Peterson likes to make: is that if that's the bad thing about openness, mm-hmm. um, like the the personality trait of openness, is that yeah you get a lot of Great ideas that people without openness don't make, but chances are the vast majority of the ideas you get are bad ideas, and most of them will fail. In fact, most of them will probably make things worse. That's why conservatives are um, an essential thing for humanity, is because they prevent bad ideas from getting instituted that make things worse. Not always, of course, but that's the role that they play. So, it. So the, when when we tie like meaning into this, so meaning is is finding that. Finding that tightrope, basically, finding that place where you you manage to stay balanced and you're walking that line, but it's a very fine line. and you can go like horribly wrong, like from any slight deviation from that course course of action. But that's kind of, that's just the way life is. It's like to to get things right is very difficult because there are so many other possibilities. Mm-hmm. right. so if you if you have if there's one best course of action, for you to take as an individual or for an entire country to take that just means there's almost an infinitude of bad possibilities and so that's what you're up against. <laughs> you're up against like an, almost an, you know, an infinity of bad possibilities and you've got to find the right one. Now luckily it is possible to find the right one or at least the class of you know the, the set of relatively good actions you know the set of actions that won't make things worse mm-hmm. and that might th- make things a little bit better and at right. at the very least you can do that you can make things a little bit better you don't have to yeah. find the perfect course of action but you can av- you can try to avoid making things worse and you can try just just getting things a little bit better
2: lopachowski says you know do not try and cure something that you don't understand mm-hmm. exactly and and the uh, the plain fact of the matter is that um you know, most people are uh, informed with the idea to do something do something already do something mm-hmm. exclamation mark where uh, doing something uh, is tantamount to doing anything uh, taking some action that that doesn't necessarily have any kind of uh, healing or holistic or uh, making better component because uh, they haven't thought it through um, you said that the the world is a it's a very complicated place, and uh, trying to come to the right decision on something, trying to address a problem or issue, um, is like walking a tightrope. Uh, it requires an incredible amount of, of fortitude and patience and intelligence and insight. Um, bringing this back to the geopolitical level, uh, we see an incredible display of this on the part of the Russian government who at any time in the past four years, let's say, could have made a disastrous decision in in the way of uh, reacting instead of responding, instead of thinking uh, intelligently uh, on the subject in the way that they have. They could have gone awry. They could have reacted. They could have uh, taken things uh, too far in, in any particular direction, uh, which would have... Justified in the minds of of Western imperial forces, um, a course of action that that could have spelled even greater disaster for the people of Syria, for the people of Ukraine, uh, for the people of in, in any number of different areas. So, um, what we're witnessing now, in in at least in the uh, responses uh, to Western interventionalism and and uh, all all kinds of crass and destructive behavior on the part of the west from russia uh is is just an incredible display of of um of intelligence of information uh they they have thought things they are an example of of a group of individuals and a nation thinking things through to the best of their ability um so yeah but but this has required on the part of each individual working on behalf of the Russian government uh i would say probably a, a level of development uh, objectivity, restraint um, and a willingness to to work with others in their team to to make the right decisions at every turn um, and just an incredible a uh, Kind of historical macro almost macro um, uh, demonstration of of where uh, being guided by higher principles and morals and good information uh, is made manifest in in keeping Russia as safe as possible for as long as possible um, and for actually taking a stand for people. On the whole planet, who have now taken notice of Russia's actions, and who uh, who have viewed them as an example of what it means to behave rationally, uh, behave uh, morally, uh, even if the kind of um, prevailing narrative is that they're exactly the opposite. So they're they're standing in the face of the noise of of uh, of malevolence um, with uh, with. A great amount of courage taking
1: it back to the um to the individual level within uh the united states in particular there is a, nike had their um their new campaign thing and with colin kaepernick just do it even if it means losing everything or something like that sacrificing everything. sacrificing everything yeah and i was just talking about uh the impulse that's out there telling people to just go out, you know, protest and do all of these things. That was immediately what came to my mind is, you know, just do it. You know, even if it means not thinking it through completely, you know, you've got to do stump something to stop, uh, this slow creeping March of patriarchy, whatever it is. Um, which is completely antithetical to going about and, uh getting the results that you actually want you know in the in the case of uh Russia and Putin um when they killed the uh the Russian choir what was it like a year or something ago um when the west you know killed killed them
0: well just we'll just add that it's uh officially it was an accident
1: yeah officially
0: but, but go on <laughs>
1: Um, but with something like that, there is, you know, the strong impulse to go out and do something, to, um, to ignore what would actually happen as a requ or a repercussion of that Mm -hmm. and to just act on the impulse. But when you're informed enough about how bad impulses are can be, or at least how bad the consequences Mm -hmm. of acting on pure impulse can be, that gives you uh, an understanding of what you shouldn't do, all of the various things Mm -hmm. that you should say no to, Mm -hmm. so that you can uh, build something better within and without.
0: Right. Right, and that ties into our discussion last week on positive disintegration. Um, We basically had the same conversation, right, where um, um, that distance between yourself and and the impulsive acting out of, you know, of that programmed reaction within you. So when something happens and like, and you want revenge, it's like, uh, like I said last week, like the, the impulse for revenge is rational in a sense, like it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. The, the impulse for revenge makes sense, but the actual act of revenge doesn't always make sense in the wider scheme of things because because very many things can go wrong through playing out that uh, that action um, you know potential and so it's basically what you're saying right now like so it, it applies not only on the individual level but you know on the national level as well where you know there have been numerous times over the last five four or five years what is it well three years since uh, the whole um, Russia and Syria thing happened, where there have been various events that happened in Syria where, um, you know, there was an event where, in, like, many nations would have gone to war over them or created some big hubbub um, in order to get revenge, in order to, you know, set things right. Um, the Russian government chose not to, um, specifically with, um, well, the latest one was actually the, you know, the, the Israelis setting up that, uh, the Russian plane to, to get shot by the Syrian air mm-hmm. defense but um it just shows that uh when there is that impulse the impulse will make sense um and the impulse is a live option right it's a possibility that uh that everything else being equal would would um would be actualized like that's kind of like the deterministic view of of things and and most people i think are are deterministic are, are, their actions are deterministically governed because they just go with the easiest option. The easiest option is to just to go with the impulse. Right? So that is an actual uh, a possibility that is actualized, but it's one that's actualized just by like um um like inertia or momentum, right? It's just mm-hmm. like you're just you're being pushed from the past. You're being pushed from like your past biology like the the impulses that have been set up in your in your like limbic system in your body in order to to push you in a certain direction they, like your body wants you to actualize this one possibility but what you need to do um, like that's just running an autopilot what you should do is think about it first look at the possibilities you know look at all of the possible courses of action and then you play them through in your mind this is one of the the you know the great things about having a mind is that you're able to like, uh, to think about various possibilities and run them through, play, like, play out these virtual worlds in your own mind. If I do this, what are the possible consequences? And what are the possible, like, things that can happen that I don't anticipate or that I don't actually want to happen? Okay, well, if I do this, oh, well, I'll really, I could, you know, I could go to jail. I could put, endanger my relationship with this person. You know, um, I could set up a whole spiral of revenge and, and, uh, And uh, blah 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 you know run through all these possibilities for your given situation for your individual situation and then maybe you'll come to the conclusion oh maybe that's not the right choice right maybe that's not such a good good idea well what is the best option then you think some more and basically you think before you act and uh, it's what if you had a a good mom it's what your mom should have taught you and your dad (laughs) to think before you do something and uh and sometimes you know like i said last week sometimes you might get lucky and the thing that you end up doing is the thing that you originally and you know wanted to do and then you can say oh yeah good okay you know you can give your your emotional body you know a, a reward for for having a good instinct and you know be like okay good emotional body but um, it doesn't always work out that way and that's life right and if you want to um well, that's the thing about uh, about this whole process, about this whole informational process, is that it does take work. You do have to think about it, and it's you know it can be fun too, you know, to to actually think about things and to to look for the best option, mm-hmm. and to and when you actually find a good option and you do it, that itself gives a, a kind of like reward yep. to your system. It's like okay, good, you know, I did I did good, you know, good good what is it good, good, good boy. pig good pig <laughs> good pig. <laughs>
2: And who knows? You know, maybe, maybe the uh, maybe being open to um, to praying uh, or to meditation um, as a kind of acknowledgement for the idea that uh, that there is a higher intelligence out there, uh, and that if we empty our cups just enough, maybe we can access some of this information that would that would help inspire us towards. Um, Towards the right decisions, especially when uh, when they really count and and they're important to us, and and we don't want to mess things up, um, and and certainly when we're kind of uh, in the confluence of emotions and and reactivity and and the feelings of confluence that uh, that bring us down and affect our thinking and our ability to reason, um, maybe that is a time to step back and uh, and and just concentrate on the idea that uh, there are uh there there is something bigger than your mind out there that that one may be able to uh be in communion with to some extent or at least just be open to the possibility of such a thing mm-hmm. um i think you know it would be pretty arrogant to assume that we're we're all that is and and that our ideas are uh, and our thoughts and our reasons are, are the only way that uh, you know things can go. Um, so another uh, another possible pathway towards uh, doing the right thing and helping oneself to become informed by what the right thing may be. Mm-hmm. Or to uh,
1: it's arrogant to think that we are all that is, and I think it's also arrogant to think that. You already know, right? Or that you already have that connection, without actually having sat down, thought it through, mm-hmm. searched, researched, um, you know, killed some sacred cows, mm-hmm. uh, to think that you already possess that ability to commune with the divine in an uncorrupted way, or uh, to be able to think logically and rationally without having put in some serious effort, mm-hmm. I think, is also just just as arrogant.
0: Yeah, you used a good word there, search, because that's one of the terms, like the information theory terms for you know finding the finding the target is you engage in a, a targeted search, right? So that's what uh, that's basically what evolution is. It's a search for targets. It's what any informational process is is uh, is a, a targeted search. So when you're looking through possibilities, you're searching possibility space for the for the uh, you know the 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 one that you want that you want to then actualize like the best one and the the nature of a search is that it takes energy it takes effort to do it so tying back to the examples that we gave like with um, like protesters and and things like that they haven't engaged in a search you know they so this might be a good rule of thumb like if you if you think you already have have the answer and you haven't actually done a lot of work to find the answer then that implies that you haven't engaged in a systematic search for the answer and that means you're probably wrong it means you're you're that you you haven't found the information you haven't found that uh, um that improbable um you know needle in a haystack basically if it if it's come easily to you and if you think you already have it then chances are it's not the answer so you know that you can use that as a rule of thumb in your life is it you know if if something's come too easily and if you think you have the answer you probably don't so you should engage in a in a search which requires effort which is going to be difficult because you're going to have to learn mm-hmm. you're going to have to uh you know kill off some some parts of yourself that uh you know think they're right and think they have the answers in order to make room for for the new possibilities and the new answers and it's going to be uh you know you're going to have to work for it and uh to come back to the point you were making Alon, about kind of the, the wider possibilities and being open to um well, you both actually made the point, you know, about uh, the fact that you know there's more to the, to the the cosmos than just us, and we have to kind of be open to those possibilities. Maybe, um, unless you guys have any other comments, any other things, um, I'll read just two more quotes that kind of um, that I found interesting from the book. We've already kind of discussed them in a generalized way, but I want uh, I wanted to leave you listeners with uh, some of Dembski's own words just to kind of um, sum up some things and, uh, um, yeah. First one from chapter four on possible worlds. So he writes, what are the possibilities that information alternately realizes or rules out? It is convenient to think of possibilities as existing in possible worlds and a world as consisting of all possibilities realized in it. In our world, the actual world, Barack Obama was re-elected President of the United States in 2012, dinosaurs once ruled the earth, etc., etc. Going on. What is at the top, or what is the top? The very top, presumably, would be the collection of all possible worlds, in which case the ultimate act of information would be to identify the actual world, the world we inhabit, to the exclusion of other worlds. Philosophers and logicians who ponder such imponderables reach different conclusions here. As a Christian theist, I'm happy to regard the collection of all possible worlds as residing in the mind of God, and then see God, in an act of creation, as actualizing one world, ours, to the exclusion of others. To say I'm happy with this prospect is not to say I'm wedded to it or have a slam-dunk argument for it, but it seems to me reasonable given my theological presuppositions. Well, one comment, or a couple comments maybe on that, is that uh, Whitehead came to similar conclusions, and not based on theological presuppositions, but based on um, just like rigorous philosophical analysis of, mm-hmm. of, like, of actually scientific presuppositions. Because Whitehead argued that the presuppositions inherent in the nature of science imply exactly what Dembski was writing about here, a, like uh, a realm that contains all possible worlds. All possibilities in all possible worlds and like we said in the Whitehead show um, uh, Whitehead called those possibilities eternal objects and he he called the the place in which those eternal objects reside the cosmic mind the mind of the cosmos um, like the the mind of God so he came to the same conclusions based on uh, kind of coming at it from a a totally uh, like uh, coming at it from a secular angle Mm -hmm. coming at it from a scientific like philosophical angle, came to the same conclusion. So just something to keep in mind there. Um, next quote is from chapter 5, Matrices of Possibility. Um, he writes, "Well, uh, just to give some background, I'll read the first paragraph and then the paragraph I want to read. Because the actual world is so large and unwieldy, we never grasp it in its entirety. Instead, we only grasp a certain limited aspects of it. This we do by situating aspects of the world within matrices of possibility. These form conceptual grids for our, for our inquiries about the world. A matrix of possibility um, is a collection of possibilities relevant to an inquiry. It provides a window on the actual world. Just as a window always has a frame, and thus views some things but not others, so a matrix of possibility limits inquiry to some aspects of the world excluding others. Because information is produced as some possibilities are realized to the exclusion of others, information is fundamentally relational. The possibilities associated with information exist only in relation to other possibilities, and thus within a reference class of possibilities. From an information-theoretic point of view, Individual possibilities make no sense on their own, but only as a part of a reference class. So this comes back to the discussion that, uh, or the little exchange we had, Adam, when we were, t- we were talking about uh, like looking at the book and mm-hmm. it, it being not all other books, but you also said not all other things that aren't books. Those are reference classes. And so th- that gets to, to his idea of information being relational, is that the only way that makes sense is if um you know if we ter- if we think about all these possibilities in terms of reference classes and actually like w- it's consciousness that creates those reference classes it's not like there's a necessarily like a pre-existing s- like set of all books and all and all things that aren't books it's like um, well, that may be the case, but what we do is we set up the parameters, right? When we're thinking about something, when we're trying to solve a problem, when we're when we're observing something, when we're making a scientific experiment or a scientific observation, we are kind of in control of that process. Okay, I am. I want to analyze this class of things. I'm going to bracket off these. I only want to look at these. We, ba- we basically make all these choices that 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 then um, limit our scope of inquiry to to like a specific class of things, a specific reference class of things. And one of the one of the like presuppositions behind that, one of the implications of that is well, what is the the nature of reference classes? How can reference classes exist? Um like are they just a product of of human minds? Well then like do do humans create them? Well what does that say? How can we create them if if they don't if if they're not made of matter? Like it all it's all um, like a question like that, it's it's kind of behind a whole bunch of topics that we've been covering, like consciousness and and mathematics and uh, and information. It's like, well, where is the information? Where is the reference class? Um, like, where are abstractions? Mm-hmm. It's it's these questions that led Whitehead, you know, and Dembski here to say that okay, well, there is there must be some like other realm essentially, some place where these things exist. Um, some place where there are reference classes, where there are like categories of things, and that's why it's it's how we can categorize in the first place, because reference classes are possible. It's like we we can only like put things in categories because it's possible to put things in in categories. Well, where is the possibility of putting things in categories? Well, that would be you know that that's part of this fundamental nature of reality. It has to be a fundamental aspect of reality, and. That again is is why Whitehead had to find a place for eternal objects, and um, a guy like Thomas Nagel, the, the philosopher, wants to find things like that. Wants to find purpose. Um, wants to find the direction of the cosmos, and presumably all other all other things of that sort. These kind of abstractions that seem real but aren't materially materially mm-hmm. materially real. He wants to find them in something that is is secular. He doesn't want to. Uh, he doesn't want uh, he doesn't like the idea of of God. Well, um, maybe there's a, maybe there's a version of God, you know, a possible God, that doesn't have some of the bad things that Nagel doesn't like. Like I don't know why what his objections were in his book. he just basically said he something about the idea rubbed him the wrong way. He didn't like the idea of of God being the source of purpose in the universe or like a cosmic mind being the you know the the receptacle, the realm in which all eternal objects exist. Um, but that seems like the best option available. Um, I haven't seen a better one, like, and Nagel himself doesn't give a better one. He just kind of says, well, I don't like that idea, so I'm going to, like, you know, place my bet on there being a a non-theological source for all these things. But, uh, but he can't really describe it because we don't, at this point, we don't don't really have the words to describe it, you know, as opposed to using some, like, divine language, some language that, um, some concept that includes... Consciousness and meaning and intelligence and information and all these things that you know need to be need to be at that level in order for them to be possible in our in our universe, but um, you know maybe it's just that the reality of all those things and the source of all those things is God in a sense in which um, you know religions haven't been very good at putting into words. Mm-hmm. Um, you know maybe the religious conceptions of God have have been more. More symbol than like uh, hard fact or hard description of reality. maybe there's something to them, but it's just we have to figure out like what that actually means and that's the that's the direction Collingwood went in that, that, uh, that there is a philosophical explanation or a a way of putting putting things philosophically in philosophical language that accounts for you know what religions are trying to describe symbolically. There's still a place for the symbolic representation and the the kind of um, the effect that that has on on a part of our being that only responds to that kind of thing, that only responds to symbols, but there's got to be, or and there seems to be a way of putting it philosophically too, and that's kind of what Whitehead and and Collingwood and and Dembski and all these people that we've been talking about um, and Peterson are either attempting to do or have done a pretty good job doing, or you know at least they're on the the way to to giving a description of that. So um, yeah, I think we're where with that said, we will leave things there. And um, probably now that we've set this, this recording in stone, um, we can come back to it at other times and refer to the, the concepts that we've talked about in this show. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks, guys, for talking about this book. And uh, we'll see everyone next week. So everyone take care.
2: Bye, everyone. See ya.